Welcome to the Automation Unplugged podcast, the podcast for technology professionals featuring leading industry personalities. I'm your host, Ron Cowan. Today's show features Brian Mills, president at Mills Technologies. Brian represents the third generation of the Mills family involved in the consumer and commercial technology industries. He started his career in product design, focusing on the integration of form and function in everyday items. After product design, Brian moved into management and operations in a Fortune 500 company, working on projects varying from the commercialization of hybrid vehicle platforms to strategic planning and mergers and acquisitions. Looking for an opportunity to leverage his technical background and small business operation skills, Brian joined Mills in 2009 to take over as president of the family business. At Mills, Brian has focused on system standardization to provide exceptionally reliable and intuitive solutions for clients and over the past seven years has doubled the size of the company. Brian is a past recipient of the Profile of Excellence Award by CE Pro Magazine. Brian has a BS in Mechanical Engineering from Northwestern University with a concentration in design and is also a certified CEDIA registered outreach instructor. We live streamed this interview on social media on Wednesday, December 21st, 2022 at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. During our time together, we discussed Brian's journey from mechanical engineering to running the third generation family business, a fun story about Brian redesigning the Tapcon screw, Brian's diversification in the business during the Great Recession of 2009, 10, and 11, and Bill's technologies and how EOS has been implemented into the company's culture and processes. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do as well. Let's tune in to this interview with Brian Mills. Brian, how are you, sir? I'm good, Ron. Good to see you. Hey, likewise, likewise. Where are you coming to us from? We are just north of Chicago. So uh, yeah, just uh, first suburb north of Chicago. Awesome. And I, I see the the festive room. Where, where are you physically located? Are you in your office? I am in our conference room. And actually, uh, one of our team members came in a couple of weeks ago over the weekend and, and decorated our office festively um, kind of throughout. So uh, it was it was a nice surprise to walk in. So thought it would add a little bit to the uh, to the conversation today. Now, so you you have so I'm here in Florida and generally it's rather warm, although I believe we have a cold snap about to hit us. But you have the cold weather, you have the the Christmas decorations, it looks like, holiday decorations. Do you also have like the holiday music playing throughout the office? Through all We've got it off right speakers? now, so it's not, uh, you know, so it's not interfering with this, but otherwise we have had it on, yes. Love it, love it. Well, Brian, you and I um, actually have a couple things in common. I thought it'd be fun to maybe start there. And the first is, uh, that you are a fellow mechanical engineer. So I, I went to Virginia Tech. I graduated back in 2000. Uh, I'm not sure how, but somehow I got a diploma and uh, there was a lot of fun and uh, uh, 
not always a lot of studying happening, but uh, they did let me out of there and I get to claim I have a mechanical engineering degree. But so do you. And you and I graduated just a, a couple of years apart. Tell me about that. Just the engine. How did engineering happen for you? Yeah, I, so I graduated in 2002 from Northwestern University with a degree in mechanical engineering focus in product design. Um, you know, it was one of those, I think, like a lot of us, we probably played with a lot of Legos as kids. Um, and uh, For me, you know, it was Capsilla. Did you ever play with Capsilla? Oh, I, don't, I don't think I played with that as much. I, I know what that is, but I, big Lego sets, which my kids now have. Uh, we actually yeah. have a Lego room in our house, but that's another story. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think just the gravi uh, gravitated towards, you know, a little bit more of the, the math and the engineering or the uh, physics. Um, and I had a number of, of family members that were engineers and, and just kind of got into it. And, and actually before I even went to school, got through some nepotism, got the chance to, uh, intern at a product design firm and really just kind of fell in love with, with product design and, and the way that they marry form and function. And so that was uh, interesting to me and, and decided to study that in school. That's awesome. Well, I want to, I want to, I want to get your thoughts around what sort of ideas or principles from your engineering background have led into your belief systems and how you run your business. So I'm just I'm putting that out there. I'm, I'm going to come back to that. Um, but one other thing you and I have in common, Brian, is that you also are on the ASEON board. So I'm on the ASEON board. I've, I've served there for a number of years and you're there. So maybe just at a high level, what is the ASEON board and, and what is the, the role that you serve? You and I both serve on that board. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, if you look at ASEON, um, I guess we're all called buying groups, although I think their function is really changed, right? I think that's, that's one of the big things is, is certainly we're, we're there to leverage scale in terms of, of maximizing profitability, but really it's networking, right? Um, I mean, that's, that's why I think a lot of these group ex groups exist. And, and certainly some of my biggest learnings from the last few years have, have been through groups like Azio and some of the, the, the other business owners I've gotten to meet there. Um, you know, I think our role on the board is, is really kind of to direct some of those activities uh, is, is, you know, when we have a conference, when we have other events, um, you know, to provide some guidance to Richard and team um, in terms of, you know, what what are we looking for? What are business owners looking for? What is going to move the needle? Um, and, and I think to give some just open and honest feedback on that, that's kind of what we do. So. Amen. And uh, well said. And uh, I've enjoyed working with you and getting to know you uh, during that time serving on the board for sure. Um, I always like to go back in time. Where did you start from? And uh, I'm actually going to be more specific with you, Brian, because your business is particularly fascinating because it's it's not the story where your business started, you know, in the last five or 10 years uh, Mills, and you could correct me around the naming, but I'll just name your current company, Mills Technologies. My notes here have that you guys, or maybe your grandfather started this back in the 1930s. So take us back in time. I want to learn about the history of the business, but then also your particular um, experience and, and life that's led you to running this very successful business today. Yeah, I, I, we are unique in that. And so um, Mills Recording Systems uh, was founded in 1939 by my grandfather, who was also a Ron, Ron Mills. It's a good name. Um, you know, he was uh, a smart guy, a Quaker from uh, central Illinois, who I think had an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and so he secured some of the first distribution rights to magnetic recording tape. 
And uh, some of the early efforts of the company were recording artists to support World War II. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of those old timey, like, you know, you'd go into the theater and, and, and you know, some of those shorts that we've seen and, and whatnot. But uh, they were a recording studio for kind of through the 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, it did some sort of you know, various professional recording and some other things. Um, and, and then that business kind of evolved, um, you know, it, they did that, but you started getting these kind of this hi-fi, these consumer products. And so, um, as the decades kind of went on, uh, they started selling some audio equipment, some video equipment, um, and, uh, you know, but we're kind of positioned as that high-end, uh, hi-fi store in, in Chicago. So we had, um, we had stores on, if people know, Chicago, Michigan Avenue and State Street, which are kind of the, the you know, expensive commerce areas there. Um, and, and did that for a long time. Um, built some really great relationships. One of the things we're proud of is um, if you if the audience remembers Siskel and Ebert. So they were both Chicago based uh, movie critics. I grew up watching Siskel and Ebert. So, and so Siskel, I couldn't wait for their reviews of, the so, you know, whatever was so, in the theater. So both of those guys were great Mills customers. Um, and in fact, if you can recall uh, when they used to have a holiday show, they'd say, you know, what's new in consumer technology? Uh, they would often bring Mills on uh, and we'd kind of talk about home theater and TVs and that sort of thing. So uh, just some some really cool, you know, it was great to be a part of Chicago history and, and, and the history of this industry. Um, and and so kind of as time progressed, you get into the late 80s and early 90s. And, and there was a pivot. Um, you had the advent of some of the big box electronic stores. So the circuit cities and the best buys and that sort of thing uh, that were really selling on price. And so people would come in and chop us for, for knowledge, but they'd go buy elsewhere. Um, at the same time, some products started coming along that, um, you know, people just didn't buy. And, and there was enough complexity there where they'd say, hey, come install this in my house. And so we kind of had in the early 90s there two business models, retail where we were getting killed uh, with high rent and that sort of thing. And then this nascent industry of, you know, I guess what we call it today, um, custom integration. And so in 94, uh, the company made the decision to shut down retail operations and focus exclusively um, on, on, on this channel. And we've been doing it since. Uh, so, yeah, since then. And when did when did you start in the business? Yeah, so I started in 2009. Um, I always joke with anybody who ever has ever met me. Um, it was the last job that I was ever going to do. Um, but uh, and, and we can go through that story. But but yeah, basically, actually take me through. Not even I, I jumped. I jumped the gun here because I, I want the team to. I want the team. I want the. I'm so used to referencing my team. I want our audience to hear that story. But also actually go back for us to your college. What you know, you studied engineering, and yet a pretty fascinating career even prior to joining the family business? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said, you know, even in high school, uh, interned at a product design firm. So I kind of had engineering and, and, and product design in the mind. Um, when I went to, to college, um, so engineers oftentimes have the option of doing what's called a co-op program, where uh, instead of being a four-year program, it's a five-year program. But um, same number of classes, you just work in industry for a year and a half. And so, um, I co-opted locally um, at, a, at a diversified manufacturing company and spent a year and a half working in their uh, R&D uh, center. So designing products, designing processes, that sort of thing. Um, Ron and I were talking about uh, earlier, um, one of my claims to fame is I redesigned all Tapcon concrete screws uh, in, in about 2000. Um, and I can't uh, let that, like, this is a big deal. 
So like everybody in the world that has used a Tapcon is using a product that the Brian Mills designed. Yeah, let's not oversell it. Let's not. This oversell is it. pretty cool. <laughs> I, I don't know. Not. I think that needs to be the front of your website. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we joked we called the Mills Cons a while. We still call them when we use them here. We call them Mills Cons. Uh, I'm but, now uh, gonna forever be referring to them as Mills Cons. And for I'm, anyone that's listening that doesn't know what we're talking about, if you ever have to hang something or or put a screw into concrete, you can't just use a regular screw. You have to use a Tapcon, which is a brand name of a concrete screw. And uh, I've, uh, I'm here in Florida, so my home's built out of concrete. And so, you know, I, we use Tapcons. I've got a Leon soundbar Denza thing in my living room, and it's the brackets held onto the wall with Tapcons. They, I didn't know, Brian, I didn't know you were in my living room. There you go. Yeah, I'm sure it's been redesigned since then, but uh, it, was a, it was a great experience at Leverage. In that particular case, got to Leverage. Um, you know, actually use some finite element software to to kind of model the whole thing and then got the very real experience of importing different types of concrete from around the United States and just sitting out on a summer day drilling thousands of uh, of, of screws into chunks of concrete to, to solve an engineering problem. So all right, so now we, we did we're down this rabbit hole, so we got to keep going. <laughs> what did you fix on the Tapcon? What was wrong and what was your solution? Yeah, it, uh, I'm sure everybody wants to hear this story. I, they totally the, the, don't, but I do. So I, I <laughs> educate so the, me. The, the, the real short of it is um, there's a natural stress point, the way that you make a screw. There was a natural stress, stress point, and as on concrete's kind of got to higher PSIs, it was causing them to snap off prematurely. And so we kind of changed the process to where that stress point got moved. And, and so the story I shared with, with Ron is, um, we had a large distributor in Florida that had canceled all of our orders because they were snapping off. And so I flew down with the sales team. I, I think I was 21 at the time, um, full suit, whatever. We go back into this warehouse in, in Florida. It's 100 degrees and 100% humidity. And the guy says, hey, I've got an order for $10 million here worth of, of the screws. If you guys can sink two screws in the floor, um, I'll, I'll give you the order. If not, I'm canceling the order. And so uh, he told me I had to do it. So in my full suit, you know, I've got this giant hammer drill. Um, you know, I, I, this is, you know, I kind of hammer in these, these two screws, they sink and he goes, here goes your order. Um, so the sales team bought me a nice dinner that night down in Florida. So, yeah, that's, that's awesome. All right. So clearly that is a milestone in one's life about <laughs> what happened after the tap. So take us, take us further. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed engineering, but I, I realized I like making decisions. Um, I was tired of having projects that were canceled and I didn't have a lot of input into them. And so coming off of school, um, another uh, diversified manufacturing company, Eaton Corporation, they had a management development program where they took people with engineering backgrounds, but they exposed them to lots of different aspects of business. So um, every nine months I would rotate where I lived and then I would rotate what job I did. So I did um, I worked in, in on the manufacturing floor and operations in North Carolina, then moved a plant to central Mexico. Um, I did some uh, marketing and new business development where we had a literally a hybrid garbage truck uh, that used a hybrid hydraulic platform um, that we were, were bringing to market. And so got to, you know, uh, write some uh, some grants and that sort of thing and uh, request some grants and and market the, the platform to a bunch of different uh, industries. Uh, and then I kind of concluded that with working um, in the corporate headquarters, in fact, for the guy that's now the CEO of that company, um, but doing things like um, 
just financial reporting, mergers and acquisitions. Um, and, and, and actually, some of the best things I did is I made his presentations. Um, you want to learn about business, make the presentations for a, for a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and find out what they think is important. Um, so some really good lessons learned there. Um, and uh, at that time, I got engaged. My wife was getting her PhD at Duke down in North Carolina. So I took a permanent role as a product manager for a, uh, about a $20 million uh, uninter- uninterruptible power supply um, product line in, in, in North Carolina. So um, did that. Um, you know, as somebody who grew up in a small business, I kind of missed that. And, and a couple of years in, um, just through some connections I had, um, there was a company, it was a, a franchisor of, um, of sporting goods, uh, retail stores. And uh, so a totally natural transition to where, <laughs> where my next step would be. Uh, but really got to talking to the owner, really liked what they were doing. Loved the idea of going into small business. Um, there were 15 of us in an, in an old converted art house in this kind of funky town in North Carolina. And, and uh, they were looking to hire somebody from outside their industry to, to kind of think about operations differently. And, and I did that. Um, I, I, I fundamentally kind of consulted to small business owners around the country, uh, really fell in love with small business. And then uh, when, when we started a family and I was interested in moving back to Chicago, wanted to find a business to run on my own. And, uh, you know, said I would never do it, uh, but uh, wanted to find something that leveraged my technical background, something that had cash flow uh, so that, you know, I could actually take a salary. And, and uh, at the time, my parents were looking to get out of the business here. And so in 2009, I, I, I moved here and I took over the family business. Did you get to work uh, during that transition? Were you able to work with your mom and dad? Yeah. So my dad, unfortunately, for health reasons, had, had kind of as exited the business uh, a year before. I had worked with him some summers in high school, um, implementing the uh, primarily the inventory management system that 16 years later had become very unwieldy and was one of the first things that I corrected here. Um, and then, but but uh, I literally worked with my mom for about eight, eight, 10 years. She retired a couple of years ago, but um, yeah, no, I would come in and, and uh, you know, our, our HR and accounting person was my mom. So. That's, that's amazing. It's got to be a lot of fun. Got It can be a lot of fun and maybe very stressful working with your parents. You know, I think when you work with your mom, you're always on your best behavior because you don't want to be that jerk. So I think it influences, you know, you being on your, your best behavior at all times. By the way, we have a couple of people on LinkedIn that have stopped in and said, hello, Paul Bachner uh, has uh, said, hello. He said, Brian, a bunch of exclamation points. <laughs> And, uh, and Wes over here at team one firefly, he's a leader on our team and he's, uh, he's welcomed you to the show, which is, uh, appreciate, appreciate that. Uh, so tell me what I just heard. I think I heard, and I'd love you to clarify is that you designed the inventory management system for the business, but not after you had gone to college, you designed this in high school. Yeah, let's let's be clear. It was a glorified Excel sheet with some some access, uh, some Microsoft Access uh, database layered on top of it. So, um, you know, I think when I when I did it when I was sixteen, you know, it was a few hundred rows. Uh, you know, when I came and take over the business in, in two thousand nine, it's now at uh, you know some tens of hundreds of thousands of rows of data and that sort of thing, and uh, was not not very clean. So, um, we we eventually got to that, not right away, but but eventually got to fixing that. So. So going back in time, 2009, I have vivid memories of 2009. I started this business in November of 07. 
So I had about six months under my belt before the whole world melted down with, uh, at the time, what was called the Great Recession. And that Great Recession easily uh, impacted our industry for the next you know, three years or so, which puts 2009 right at the epicenter of probably a very scary time. What was that like? I mean, what was that time period like to be entering the family business? A, that sounds very hard, and B, it sounds very stressful, potentially with economic conditions that were going on. Yeah, I feel extremely fortunate that that's when I entered the business. And I know that sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but um, I mean, imagine a 30-year-old kid who's never worked in the business basically saying, I'm in charge now, right? I mean, it it it, it smacks of just uh, of hubris, right? And, and, and so I think I, I say I'm very fortunate, you know, some of the employees I had known since I was five years old. I mean, it's, it's, it's a unique situation in family business. Um, but I feel very fortunate in that we were not in a good position, just to be blunt. Um, I think that made people a lot more willing to say, you know what, I'm not sure who this person is, but let's follow him and see what happens because it can't be any worse. Um, and so I think if I had entered at a time where, where things were going extremely well, I'm not sure I would have gotten that buy-in. Um, you know, fortunately, I, I walked in when things were not going well. We were we were lucky um, to get some early victories, and I think that just kind of built the momentum for uh, what was to come. Anything jump out at you in terms of changes you implemented anywhere across the business in those first call it year or two that you think likely impacted your survivability and now your ability to thrive? Yeah, I think there were two things that that still to this day I think are differentiators for our business. Um, the first one um, is, you know, I, I kind of looked at it as an outsider and um, kind of based on that that product management background, and I couldn't understand why we lumped everything into, into installation. Um, and in kind of my going theory at the time was, I to me it feels like the differentiators in this industry should be design and support. Uh, like, like a lot of people are really good at installation, but really the user experience is made in, in the design side. And when I say design, not design documents, but really voice of the customer, listening to what they want and, and designing a system that's going to meet their needs. Um, and then and then support. I mean, you know, we did not have a support business. We had an apology business. I'm sorry that the system that we designed or installed five years ago doesn't work perfectly. Right. And and I, I yeah, I don't know how it was for the rest of the industry, but that felt weird because it's technology. We, you have to embrace that it's going to fall apart sometimes. So I think splitting those things out and having conversations around that, a lot of our, we targeted architects, I think, because I had that background in form and function and, and felt more comfortable speaking that language. So I think that's where some of our early uh, victories were there. The other thing um, that I kind of had taken away from, from previous industries is that Every industry has one North Star financial metric. Um, so when I was at a diversified manufacturer, you know, you can imagine you're spending all this money on these giant machines and you have to worry about inventory and that sort of thing. So their number was like cash flow based on, on invested capital, right? That's if you're a diversified manufacturer, that's what you worry about. When I was in retail, your biggest number is, is, is typically your, your rent. It's your, your, Price per square foot, um, and so how much revenue you can generate per square feet per square foot that often dictates your profitability. So, you know, when I looked at this industry, I said, "Well, what, what's really that driver?" And and the the one that we arrived at was you know really gross profit, which is 
that's kind of your variable. And when you look at a proposal, how much gross profit am I going to make dollar wise? And then what's our limiting factor? And, and for us, that was, um, you know, it's our ability to hire, train and retain great technicians. And so really our, our limiting factor is installation tax and their hours. And so very early on, we started looking at everything through the lens of gross profit per, per technician hour. And we made decisions on which, you know, which projects and uh, to go after based on that, you know, and, and, and really maintaining a portfolio. And that served us well. Um, I, I think, you know, you can, you don't necessarily have to crank a lot of revenue if you're making sure that everything that you're doing is profitable um, and, and, and in terms of opportunity costs as well. So, um, you know, do I do this job that's $185 an hour in gross profit per hour versus this one that's 120 you, you know, you, you start making informed decisions. Do you have numbers or recommendations or targets that are, you just mentioned gross, gross profit per technician. Are those, um, is that on your dashboard with your leadership team? Is that a top line metric that you're always looking at? Yeah. So, you know, in the last year, up until about uh, 18 months ago, I was the only salesperson here, um, or at least have been for a few years. Um, we've built out now a sales team to three of us. And in fact, I'm kind of stepping away a little bit from doing that. One of the things you have to realize is you've got to set standards on how other people sell. And so that's kind of, um, that's hammered into our sales team. I mean, our, all overall our team, but our sales team, they know what that number needs to be. Um, it's hard to say, it depends on your business a little bit, right? Um, so it's it's hard to say exactly because it's based on, you know, what are your fixed costs and, and, and that's to do with how thing. you build out your P&L, right? In order for it, that it number is, it is. to um, fully What's sense. interesting about it though is, is, it doesn't become then just one number. I think you can start to think about it in terms of risk. So, okay, you know, let's say our number is $150 of gross profit per, per hour, which is approximately what it is for us. But not all jobs are the same. There's a lot higher risk if I've got a thousand hours on a project and it's in a high rise that takes a long time to get into. It's a builder I've never worked with before. There's a risk there. And so I may say for that job, I'm not going to, I'm not $150 an hour is not sufficient that job's got to be at $180 an hour to mitigate risk. Um, whereas you may have something that, hey, we've worked with this person a ton of time before, existing client, everything's a known, it's under our control. Yeah, if it has to be, if it's a competitive situation, maybe we're willing to do it for a little bit less. So um, it, it leads into some really interesting conversations too. Um, you know, I think this industry is like, oh, we don't discount. Well, what is discounting? You know, I mean, it... it we have products that we make no margin on and we have mar products that we make very large margin on, but it gets into a, are we better off selling a $500 pair of speakers at 50 points of margin or a thousand dollar pair of speakers at 40 points of margin, which one makes us more money, which creates a better client experience. Um, and so it's, it's, it's led us to some, you know, some business strategies and that sort of thing that maybe not be for everybody, uh, but it worked for us. It sounds like you have a strong handle on your business finances. Have you always, since you took over the business, played that role? Or is there a counter? Is there a, a member of your team that is, you know, their job is to make sure the, the, the I don't want to say just a bookkeeper role, but the, really the more strategic direction of financial management. How do you, yeah. how have you always approached that? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be lying if I said our books have always been awesome. Um, they were very bad for a very long time. Uh, yeah. And and it's it's a regret that I have because 
it's really hard to make decisions uh, without that information and not just having that information accurate, having that information timely, right? I mean, I, I think without getting too far into it, one of the real challenges of, of this industry is how long our projects are. You know, so, you know, it gets into the question, when do you recognize revenue? Do you recognize revenue on a piece of equipment when you sell it, when you order it, when you install it, when the project's all done? Um, and so those, you know, for those of us in the industry, big projects can create really big swings in profitability on a monthly or even quarterly basis. So uh, back to your question, um, I've always kind of looked at it strategically. We have the way that we're structured. We have a person in charge of internal operations and and she with an outside bookkeeper kind of maintains that. Finally, in the last two years, we've had it to the point where I'm satisfied with it and we're actually using it more uh, strategically than we have in the past. I want to go really granular with this question. It's actually based on a conversation I was happening. Uh, I was having a, a, oh, really over the last week with a couple of different folks, but it, it has to do with in some markets across North America, this could be happening around the world as well. I just, the conversations I've recently had are here in North America, US and Canada. And it has to do with in some markets, some of these middle size projects, um, middle market projects, even smaller projects have been eroding or slowing down. And uh, what's nice about those projects is they are, they're often great for cash flow. You can get in and get out of a job in 60 days, 90 days, you know, maybe sometimes in a couple of weeks, which is great because it helps you pay the bills. You got to, you know, you pay your mortgage or you pay your people with cash. And uh, and at the same time, I'm seeing or they're seeing uh, uh, what appears to be an increase in larger projects, right? And 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 what triggered this thought is your comment about understanding kind of the way money's moving through the business. And a, a big project can look like a vanity metric of success. Wow, I scored a $500,000 job or I scored a million-dollar job, whatever that is. But a million-dollar job could be spread that revenue could be spread over three years. Whereas, so if your small to medium job has eroded and there's less of them and you're now scoring more big jobs, that's a, I mean, is it, so this is a long setup. Is that not a completely different business to run than maybe the business you were running pre previous to that? That's just a high level meta question. And then I'm curious what you're seeing or like is a lot of people tune into this show. Like what, what's happening in Chicago, what's happening in LA? Like what are people in different markets seeing and hearing? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of questions to, to unpack there. Um, so, so I think if I had two wishes for this industry, one of them would be, we need to shift from a project mentality to a relationship mentality. I think that, in, in, and we're seeing this, right? And we, we kind of had this thesis a few years ago and, and I think COVID um, really proved it right. But like, we got to stop thinking about our involvement is only when projects happen because the downside of projects is you've got to, the, the opportunity has to exist. There has to be a hole in the ground, right? There has to be the right alignment of that builder or that architect or that client, you know, kind of choosing you and that sort of thing. Um, it, it, there's a lot of challenges and risk involved with that. Uh, we we made the decision to invest kind of more heavily on the service side of our business starting about five years ago. So um, we're on the One Vision platform. Uh, they've been a great help in, in, in getting us to think about it differently. But one of the things that we've seen, and, and part of this speaks to the age of our company as well, we have clients that go back 
10, 15, 25 years. Um, how do you serve that client who just wants to do a $15,000 upgrade of something? You know, like, I mean, we all saw it during COVID, but the, the, the 10, 15, $20,000 network upgrade, right? I want some new TVs. I want to do outdoor and that sort of thing. So one of the trends that we've seen in our company over the last four years is our average project side has gone down significantly. The number of projects has gone up significantly, but we really haven't changed our clientele a lot. It's just how we do business with them. It's that, you know, we are doing the, okay, this year we're going to do the, you know, the, the $10,000, whatever it is. And next year we're going to do the $40,000, whatever it is. And so um, just a lot more touch points with, with, a, with a client. So I have heard what you said of the middle's gone. We have a hard time distinguishing that because we do so much of our business with existing customers. Um, you know, the other thing, so, so if we look exclusively though at, at, at um, new construction, you know, Chicago is an interesting market. Um, we Midwesterners tend to be uh, humble and not a lot showy. So literally the same client that I'll do a home with here as their primary residence may have a very different spending pattern than their home in Miami or Aspen or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, so I, I don't think we have seen that trend of it's the extremes, but we're a little bit different business from that standpoint. What, uh, out of curiosity, if you're willing to share it, what, when you think about, and we'll just say high level, and I don't need exact numbers, but more of percentages or ideas, if you look at your revenue forecast for next year within your business, because your legacy goes back to the 1930s, what, what percentage of revenue do you expect to come from that existing book of customers versus new customers? Yeah, uh, it's a good question, and I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's over 50%. Over 50%. Yeah. And is that trend, is it changing or has it been 50% for a long time? Um, I think it's, it's, it's probably percentage wise the same, you know, dollar wise, it keeps going up. So as our, you know, we had, we're going to finish this year about 17% up. Um, next year, we're targeting another 15 to 20% up, um, you know, despite the economic conditions. So just the dollars are getting bigger. Um, but, but as a percent, it's, it's probably comparable. It's, it probably went up a little bit um, from where it was, but but yeah, I think that's a good ballpark. Well, I I, I think you're espousing a, a really powerful point here, and that is the power of your customer base and properly staying connected to that customer base. And it sounds like through um, great service, keeping their positive energy and positive thoughts about their technology. Uh, in line so that they, in fact, sounds like become a customer for life. Um, yeah, I, I think the other part of that is, I mean, it's interesting. I think for a long time, having a large customer base in this industry was an anchor. It was a negative, not a positive, right? And and, and this goes to, I think generally our industry did not know how to sell labor, right? We The the the, the dirty secret of this industry is we don't survive without selling boxes. And, and it, you know, it leads to some, some, it leads clients to oftentimes come to us saying, you know what, I had this great integrated, they were so great during the project, but now we're two years out and I call them and they don't really respond. And, and I just, I don't get it. And I said, I get it. They're not making as much money. I mean, a couple of things. One, you, your organizational structure has to be significantly different to be respond to those, to service than it is for big projects. Right. But then secondly, I mean, if you really look at it back to that that gross profit per hour, if I'm making $200 in gross profit 
you know, on the sale of a pair of speakers in that hour. And now you're asking me to take that same technician and just sell labor. I mean, what is that number? Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it, I don't know if anybody's going to be selling $400. Some, some people will, but a lot of people are not going to be selling, you know, service labor at $400 an hour. Uh, but then what are some different, you know, methods that we have to at least make that profitable? And, and so I think one of the things that, that we've done in the last five years is really leaned into that of like, yeah, it's, it's really difficult to be good at service and you want us to be profitable at it because if we're profitable at it. We pay attention to it. And so, you know, one of the things that we do is we do sell, um, service memberships that basically just dictate the terms of how responsive we are. Um, you know, whether that's remote, in person, if we're proactively monitoring equipment. Uh, and we have 150 clients. I never thought we'd get to this level. We have 150 clients that pay us monthly um, that dic- to, for some, you know, advanced form of, of response from our, um, from our service team. And that's great because that helps then keep, by, by those having that monthly revenue, it helps us keep the proper team staff, but it also means that our hourly costs can be a little bit lower than it would otherwise. That's, that's awesome. Do you mind sharing? Like, how do you, how'd you get to, how long did it take you to get to 150 and kind of how you think about that or how you approach that? Yeah. It, it, you know, like a lot of things, it was not linear. Um, and one of the other things I think I learned from it is we were certainly victims of our own small thinking, you know? And so when we started it, um, and, and this was partnering with One Vision, uh, who was a great partner in terms of coaching us and, and, and getting us to think you know, to make a cultural shift uh, in terms of how we thought about support and ongoing um, client relationships. But I thought we'd get to 30. You know, I'd say like, all right, I know that these are the the 20 or 30 people that call me a lot. Really, my goal is to get these 20 or 30 people not to have to bother me after hours and and so that I can have better work-life balance and my technicians can have better work-life balance. And it sort of was a self-fulfilling prophecy. We, We were there for the first, I don't know what it was, 12, 18 months or whatever. Um, and then, you know, we had somebody come in that, and we kind of rallied behind it saying, you know what, we're, we're having all these other people come to us and saying, I'm not happy with the level of, of service I'm getting from, from companies like you, um, their value, I hear you've got something different. And, and so we started building and then we made another big push and we got to about 75 and then we plateaued. Um, and, and then I think to get to 150, we really started selling it as part of our sales process. So one of the first conversations we're going to have if you're a new client of us is how we go about support, what the different options are, um, and, 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 and why it's a better experience. And so now you're beginning to see with every, you know, not every project sold, but with a good, good number of projects sold, people are also buying into the membership before we, you know, before we run the first wire. What would you say, Brian, to anyone listening or watching that isn't paying a great deal of attention to the service of their clients or the service department? Maybe doesn't even have a service department. Um, it's hard, right? I mean, it's like we tried for a number of years on our own to do it and we failed. I think one of the biggest things is you've got to be very, very simple in what you're offering. You know, we had these ideas of we'll bundle this many hours of labor and we'll give this many discounts on future. Like it was all too complex. And, and so the model that worked for us, which is the one vision model, which is, you know, it's 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 going to dictate the terms of our responsiveness. I mean, there's a few other things in there as well, but but that's basically what you're paying for is. And, and for us, it's great because there's no ambiguity just because I have a cell phone, um, you know, doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to I'm not going to answer it. Um, we have a process now for it. Um, you know, and, and I think that was a huge thing for us. I think 
the the only time I was ever ready to like kind of throw up my hands and leave the industry was was just the stress that was caused with clients reaching out after hours in particular. And you know, the amazing thing about is about that is I don't even think it's so much that clients were angry. It just they experience it residentially. They experience our systems, you know, uh, or I should say we work between eight and four PM Monday through Friday. They use our systems not eight to four PM Monday through Friday. And so it was just top of mind. Hey, I'm home right now. It's Wednesday night. I see this isn't working. And you know, one of the things that just amazes me about this industry from top to bottom, um, people care. Like I, I if there was one thing I could tell a, a consumer is you have no idea how much every single person at your integration firm cares. And so even if they were saying, no big deal, you know, you get it in your head, it's eight o'clock at night. You're like, oh, I wonder why that's not working. Maybe if we, and, and, and it just festers, you know? And, um, and so I think to give our technicians a break, to give ourselves a break, we just, when you're off, you're off. And when you're on call, you're on call. Um, and it's just, it's such a better work-life balance. Brilliant. Brian, you also practice EOS, EOS Traction. And I, I've talked about that on multiple occasions on this show. Uh, we practice EOS Traction. Uh, why don't you share kind of how you guys practice it or or how it's maybe uh, positively or negatively, but uh, affected your business? Yeah. So um, I, I've been accused of, you know, kind of being in the EOS cult. Um, but I made EOS the call is, too, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those not on it, EOS has been the best thing for our business that we've done in the last three years, five years, probably maybe ever. Yeah. Um, and, and it really is like, does your business have an operating system? Right. And, and, and if we think about it, like everything we do, I mean, we're in technology, everything has an operating system. Our business did not have an operating system. Uh, and, and so, you know, and, and when we say that how our meetings run, how are, you know, measurables, you know, um, reported, um, how is the team organized? Um, how do you give feedback? Uh, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, being on the journey. So we just finished, uh, we just concluded year two, two weeks ago, we had an annual session. So for those who do EOS, the year concludes with a two day deep dive where you kind of look at what, what has been done, but then also like, all right, let's revisit what are, what is our 10 year goal, our five year goal, our one year goal? Um, and then how is our organization aligned with that? It creates some really good discussion. Um, I think as a bigger part of that, it has transformed our culture. Um, you know, we all mean well. And somebody, you know, a technician might come to me and say, like, hey, I've got this idea for a thing. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then I get busy and then I don't respond to it. And then the next time they have an idea, the, the technician is going to be like, he didn't listen the last time. Why am I going to do it again? You know, one of the results of EOS is we have everybody has a weekly meeting. Those issues, those ideas, all those things get moved up and down the organization in a proper manner so they get responded to. Um, and and it's just the level of engagement is so much better because of it. Um, people, Why do you people think are, that is? I, people are heard. I mean, they've, they, they've got a voice. They've got a platform. Um, and they also, you know, I think it's also where do I fit in the organization? So if, you know, if our goal next year is 20% growth and X amount of profitability, what is my role in getting there? Oh, so I'm a technician. I, I understand, you know, that my role in that is going to be utilization. I was, I was clocking in about six billable hours a day. My stretch is to find a way to get that to six and a half. And that little action is going to yield another 
$100,000 of gross profit. And oh, by the way, we have an incentive plan now where I get a piece of that too. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so, so things that used to take us months, years, some things we'd never get to, we're able to knock out. And we're also able to, you know, as, as part of that, a lot of it is saying, no, this is not a priority right now. I would love to do this sort of thing, but in the next 90 days, it's not a priority. We're not going to think about it. We're not going to waste mental energy on it. So, um, so I think those have been really big things. People listening go, this sounds, all right, he's a member of a cult. This sounds too good to be true. All right. How does someone that's not doing this, uh, has not read the book Traction, has not read the book What the Heck is EOS, has not read Rocket Fuel, has not read any of this content, what's uh, maybe in, in straightforward language, How what is it like to come on board with EOS? Like, What is that onboarding process? Yeah, and EOS has changed, right? So it's it's kind of become the franchise model on its own. So so you can self-implement. You can read. I mean, all the tools are out there. You can read um, Traction. You can read uh, any of the books that Ron just mentioned. There's a lot of, of resources out there on the web, and you can try to self-implement. In the experience, in our experience, in the experience of anybody I've ever talked to, you're not going to be successful. And it's it's kind of the same thing. Of I could go to the gym and I could get myself in shape. But the reality is if I hire a personal trainer, I've got accountability. Um, and so, you know, we we hired an implementer, um, you know, and, and they were really our guide for the two years on this process where they would they would work with us quarterly. So you have kind of quarterly, you've got an initial onboarding, you've got quarterly check-ins, you've got an annual. Um, the individual is fantastic at doing it. Justin Cook um, has just been such an awesome person to work with on this. Um you know, it it's expensive and in EOS rates from what I hear have gone up significantly from when we started. So I'm glad we we got in when we did. Uh it's still worth it. It's gonna be a big investment. Um, uh, but but for us, I'd say even at some of those rates, it's absolutely worth it. And so now we're at a point where two years on, we're basically doing it ourselves. Um, we're still gonna bring in our implementer on an annual basis, but otherwise we're we're now running it ourselves. You mentioned uh, right when you were starting to talk about EOS, it's changed how you run meetings. Uh, what does it mean to run an effective meeting? Yeah. So, um, and and uh, if anybody's ever read uh, books by, um, I can't think of his first name, Lencioni. Um, Patrick a, Lencioni. Patrick Lencioni. Thank you. He's got a couple, he writes in business fables, which I love. It's like a narrative, but it has all your, your, your business things built in. So, um, the five dysfunctions is, is probably the most common one, which is a great one. There's another one uh, called death by meeting. And, and so um, we all hate meetings because, and I ran them this way forever. A meeting was, okay, let's go through our 40 open projects. Number one, how is it? Number two, how is it? And, and so, you know, not to steal the the, the book by Lencioni, but like in it, basically the, the character finds out that like, why, you know, meetings are the same length as movies. Why do we love movies? Well, movies have conflict, there's tension. And so the whole idea with an EOS meeting is, yes, there's some check-in and that sort of thing, but the majority of the meeting is is what's called the IDS, identify, discuss, and solve. Here's our issues, let's have at it. Nothing is sacred. We can totally throw it, we're, we're comfortable enough with each other to, to speak our mind. And at the end of the day, we come to resolution and we're all in agreement on it. So rather than meetings being a reporting function, they're actually a, a, a workshop discussion function where you're solving issues and you're moving on. Uh, and they're just more fun. Uh, so, so yeah, that's been, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to have everyone like that. Uh, but it's, it's, it's made them a lot more, uh, there's a lot more engagement. 
And in EOS uh, nomenclature, that's called an L10 meeting. And the reason they want it uh, called an L10 is in a perfect world, every single member in that meeting would rate it a 10 out of 10 in terms of effectiveness. And for anyone watching or listening that, you know, just try it out in your next meeting, have a normal meeting as good or as dysfunctional as it might be. And then ask everyone to rate that meeting one to 10, 10, this was highly effective and one, it was a waste of my time and see what you come out with. And when just that idea that accountability is built into the name of the type of meetings you run in EOS, it immediately forces you, me, everybody attending that meeting to make sure it's an effective meeting. I'd rather have less meetings that are more effective than more meetings that are less effective. I think everyone would raise their their hand to that. Um, that's awesome. You mentioned uh, Justin Cook. Was that your EOS implementer? Is this someone that is soliciting other clients? Or is yeah, there no. a website or a shout out you want to give to that that individual? Yeah. I, I mean, so, so Justin's great. You know, Justin comes from our industry. Um, he was actually a team member at One Vision for a while. Um, what I love about Justin is, you know, there are different takes on should an implementer have industry experience? Um, and there, there's arguments either way. Um, Justin is really largely not taking people from our industry because he feels that interferes with him being, you know, being kind of pure in the, the EOS implementation. They are there not to give advice. They're there to facilitate, right? So, uh, but certainly I think EOS Worldwide is, is the website. Um, you know, that being said, if somebody wanted to reach out to me, I'm happy to put you, you know, like there's kind of back channels too of, Hey, who's a, who's a good implementer and that sort of thing. Um, so more than happy to put you in, in, in touch. We've done that for a few other integrators. I, I, I give them Justin's name. Justin was able to find a, a person in their market. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm in the category and Brian, you mentioned there's a category where you have an implementer or, you know, a coach of sorts, and then you kind of uh, uh, you have the opportunity to self-implement beyond that. I'm in the camp at One Firefly where we just uh, appreciate the luxury of that moderator on an ongoing basis. So uh, we certainly feel that we're now we can generally run those meetings, but we just appreciate I appreciate as a CEO and founder having a third party facilitating the dialogue of which then I'm a participant. So there's there's just different ways to go about, you know, getting getting the mission accomplished. And uh, those are two two immediate examples. Um, to pivot uh, to one, I'm just mindful of time. Uh, we're almost at the hour. I just have one more thing I wanted to dig into. I know that, uh, Brian, you and team have focused on building relationships with architects and designers. And that's an important part of your go-to-business strategy. Can you just share how you think about that? Yeah, I think this goes back to, you know, something I said earlier, um, you know, my background is product design, you know, that marriage of form and function. I'm just particularly, I feel comfortable doing that. And so um, very early on, um, I got my uh, CDA ROI, COI certification. Um, and, and a big part of our marketing strategy is lunch and learns of reaching out to the design community. We tend to be architect heavy. Um, and, and just establishing ourselves as a knowledge leader. Um, you know, it's, it's, we, we talk about our company having, um, kind of four pillars. Um, so I had mentioned, you know, the, our design, our installation and support. The other one that isn't a, a revenue center is education. And, you know, one of the things that's really challenging is, is people 
don't really know that our industry exists or what we do. And so um, we're big proponents of, of reaching out to architects, reaching out to the design community and, and speaking on it. Um, personally, uh, I've been fortunate. I've had the chance to speak um, uh, through the AIA, American Institute of Architects, a few times. Um, so both locally, the, there's different chapters of AIA. And so the one that's relevant kind of to our industry is something called CRAN, which is the Custom Residential Architects Network. Uh, so if you have a CRAN chapter, um, I'd reach out to them and find out how to get involved. Uh, in 2018, I actually had the the um, good fortune to be able to speak at the CRAN National Conference. So it was in Cincinnati, um, a really cool event. Got to hang out with 250 architects and tour some significant homes and that sort of thing. But um, I got to speak on basically how architects can build better relationships with integrators um, and, and kind of what's a blueprint for, for that. So in fact, I think that course is still on AIA's um, e-learning website and that sort of thing. But, you know, just the idea of bringing us in early I mean, is something that's spoken to a lot. But and, and, and why that's better, um, you know, the, what that can yield, why that's a better relationship um, and, and, and really how to find people, people like us. I am sharing your website for all of us that are, are watching on uh, the socials. And uh, that website is Mills hyphen technologies.com. Um, Brian, it's been awesome having you on, on show two thirty. Let me, let me make sure I get the number right. Uh, I think it's two thirty two. Uh, David come over here and correct me if it's not two thirty two. but, uh, it's been awesome having you on the show. How else could people that, uh, would like to get in touch with you? How else would you recommend they do that? Yeah, I mean, you can go to the website. You can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, my email address is Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, the letter M, at mills-technologies.com. Um, you know, always, always up for a good conversation about, uh, you know, my love of small business. Always love talking to other business owners and manufacturers and that sort of thing. So, Awesome. Brian, happy holidays, sir. And uh, I look forward to seeing you uh, in person at the next Azione conference. And uh, I'm sure we'll have opportunities to talk sooner than that. Maybe I'm, I'm heading out to Phoenix for this Lightapalooza conference in February. So maybe we'll have an opportunity to, to run into each other there. I hope to see you there. And happy holidays to you as well. Thank you, buddy. Be well. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Automation Unplugged. For a full transcript of this show and all previous shows, head over to our website at onefirefly.com forward slash AU. There you'll find links to all transcripts, show notes, Facebook Live recordings, and resources mentioned during the show. If you enjoyed this episode and like to hear more, follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please follow us on social media. We are at One Firefly LLC on all platforms. Don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Automation Unplugged as we dive deeper into technology trends and the fascinating people that make up the custom integration industry. Bye for now.